Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So here we are in part 10 of our series on James. If, uh, if you're just joining us, you've missed a little bit. We're in the last chapter of James this morning, James 5. But before we get into what the passage actually says, I want to begin <clears throat> by asking a question. When we're going through something difficult, when we feel alone or helpless or when our circumstances are so brutal that we, we barely feel we can get out of bed in the morning, when we feel overwhelmed and discouraged, like picture some of the worst moments in your life. When we feel like that, isn't it nice to have someone at least recognize what we're going through? Just have someone just come and put their arm around us and say, hey, I see what you're having to deal with. I'm, I'm really sorry that you're having to walk this road or something like that. Or, or have, to have them say, how are you? And genuinely mean it, not just conversational. Hey, how's it going? But Actually, how are you doing? Because I understand the circumstances that you're facing right now. Or to have someone say, man, I've been through the same thing. I bet what you're dealing with is really hard. But I just think that you're handling it so well. To, to have someone say that kind of thing, to actually stop and look you in the eye and, and allow themselves to be in your shoes, even for a moment, isn't that a good thing? Man, when, when that happens for me, that is like someone breathing life into me. When I feel discouraged or when hard done by or going through something difficult and someone chooses to pause their life that they may enter into mine for a moment and identify with me, oh man, does that ever do good things for me? Would you agree with that? Yeah, see like these are good things, right? So today, in this final chapter of James, this will be, we'll have one more message next week. In this passage, we're going to see Pastor James offer comfort and encouragement to his beleaguered brothers and sisters. I really think that what we're going to study today was meant to be not only an encouragement to those people at that time, but for all of us when we face some sort of difficulty in life because of our faith in Jesus. So let me pause to pray one more time here, and then we're going to get into the word and open our hearts to what Jesus has to say. <clears throat> Father, this is your word, not mine, not ours. And we want your interpretation. We want your conviction. We want your Holy Spirit. We want your message to pierce our hearts. Sometimes we're really tough and we develop a thick skin because of the things going on in this world. And Jesus, accidentally, we, we then have a thick skin towards you. And we don't allow the good things to come in when we're sometimes protecting ourselves from the bad. So, Father, I pray that we would not guard ourselves against you, but we would open ourselves up, exposing our innermost being to the Holy Spirit and your message and your truth and your love and your comfort and your encouragement that we need. We need you, Jesus. Help us to open ourselves to you this morning. Amen. Okay, so here we go with James chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh. 
Sorry, I missed my, I lost my spot. And eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Okay, so I started talking about how this passage is about comfort and encouragement, and this isn't exactly something you're going to see, you know, crocheted on your grandma's pillow on her plastic-covered couch. Uh, but bear with me, okay, because I really believe this is the beginning of something amazing. This isn't exactly Christmas card material, like I said, but, but James opens this section of, of James 5 here by pronouncing judgment on the rich oppressors of God's people. He's kind of going old school, like an Old Testament prophet here in this moment. The main message of, Jesus's, or of James's warning sorry, is that the wealth that people hoard during their life will be their ruin. What they have focused their life on will be the very thing that costs them their life. Paul says something kind of similar in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10. I love this passage. I love to read it with you. It says, uh, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So yes, the, to love money, to fixate or focus our lives on getting rich, has led to a lot of evil in this world. Money itself isn't evil, but when the desires of our heart become focused on obtaining wealth and not living for Jesus, something's out of whack, right? The greed of the rich has led them to do some evil things. Some, there's been some evil living that has occurred because their greed has taken over their hearts. And James exposes the evil that these rich people who are supposed to weep and wail, like, like James is saying, is he's exposing the evil that has shown up in their lives. This, it starts here with this kind of talk in verse 4. James continues by saying to these rich people, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. If you remember, if you've been with us right from the beginning of this series, you may remember us talking about how the believers that James is addressing his letter to were actually many people who lived in Jerusalem. But because of great persecution that came against the church, they had to flee Jerusalem and now were scattered uh, across the countryside in other cities, foreign lands, just to keep their life. They were harshly persecuted and they left Jerusalem with the shirt on their back and not much else in many cases. Now wherever they settled, they were the, some of the poorest ranking people in all of society. They were desperately poor. And the rich people who lived near to these poor believers now began to take advantage of them, thinking, well, they got nothing, so they're at my mercy. I can get what I want out of these people, and what are they going to do to me? The rich were likely hiring these Christians to do a job, mow their fields, as this passage says, and then they didn't pay them. That's what it says in this passage here. How despicable is that? To, to hire someone, know that they're desperate, even if you were to exploit them by paying them very little, and then you decide not to pay them at all. The rich were living a lavish lifestyle, giving themselves every pleasure they would ever desire, all the while ignoring the needs of the poor who were living among them, who they hired. 
The rich were even going so far as to, as James says, murder these people who have not resisted or opposed them. Now, just, just a small caveat here on murder. James doesn't go into detail about this. So we don't know if this is legitimate murder, like ending someone's life, or if he's referring back to the, the point that these people are desperately poor, and then you're refusing to pay their wage. And that wage was a daily wage. If they came home with no money, that means no food. If you have no food, that means you, eventually you starve, right? So it could be murder in the sense that it was a long, slow process of just taking or denying them the basic means for their life. So this is very interesting the way that James starts this passage. But I want to pause here now. We've gone through the first six verses. We've seen all this judgment talk. We've seen the evil that comes from a rich and lavish lifestyle when people are greedy and they do not uh, recognize the Lord. But I, I just want to pause and I want to ask a question. If James is writing this letter to Christians who have been driven from their homes in Jerusalem, and that's what it says in James 1, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, right? That's the 12 Jewish Christian tribes that are scattered amongst the nations. If he's writing that letter to those people, why would he then write this section of his letter as though he's writing to the rich people who oppress the Christians that he started his letter to? I don't really know if it matters if the rich people ever really see this letter or not. All, I, all we know for sure is that James intends for this letter to be read by the Christians who are enduring hardships at the hands of the rich and greedy. So let's put ourselves in their shoes for a moment, in, in the shoes of these poor people who are being despised, who are being neglected, who are being mistreated. If we put ourselves in their shoes and they receive a letter like this, and this letter talks about all these things so far about the people who are oppressing them, the people who are taking advantage of them, and there's a judgment spoken against them. For me, if I'm one of those people, I would see that as greatly encouraging. And you might be puzzled say, well, Jeff, why would you see that as encouraging? Let me, let me tell you why. Because someone has noticed me. They've understood what I'm going through. And they say, oh, Jeff, I see the difficulty that's coming upon you because this group of people is taking advantage of you, right? Christians, I see that you're trying to be faithful to the Lord. You're living in dire circumstances. And on top of that, someone else is trying to really cause your life to be as painful as possible. I see what's going on. I see the hurt that you're experiencing. I'm identifying with you. I think that would be an amazing encouragement just to know that I'm not forgotten. Someone has remembered me even though I have fled for my life. Three phrases stick out to me from verses 4, 5, and 6 that would be the, the main pieces of this encouragement, okay? So I want to share these with you. The, the first phrase is from verse 4, and it says, The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Who are the harvesters? The, the, the Christians, right? The people who've been hired to mow the fields of the rich, and yet they have been not... They haven't been paid, right? You withheld the wages from the people who are working for you, right? So the cries of the harvesters, think about what they're crying about. Think about the desperation. They're saying, Lord, I'm trying to do what's right. But these people are, they're slowly killing me and my family. I'm trying to maintain integrity, Lord, but how do I do this? Jesus, I need your strength. That kind of a cry is reaching the ears of the Lord. And James wants to say, guys, don't give up. Your prayers are heard. 
Jesus knows what you're going through. He understands and he hears the hardships that you're talking to him about. Don't feel like he's ignoring you. Don't feel like you're alone. You are not hopeless. You are not lost. God knows you. Wouldn't that be a great encouragement to be reminded of? And I like how James doesn't say, guys, I know what you're going through. See, it's one thing when I identify with your struggle, but if, if you're struggling and I point you to Jesus, how much better is that, right? Second phrase in verse 5 says, you lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. I grew up on a pig farm, so I know what slaughtering is all about. Weanlings came to our farm and we fed them and fed them and fed them until they reached market weight or until they were big and fat. And then we sent them to the slaughterhouse. Or in some cases, we would slaughter them because, hey, pork, we need that to live. Did these pigs that we were raising and feeding and allowing them to indulge on the grain that we put in their trough, did they understand their fate? Nope. It <laughs> just ate and ate and ate, right? These pigs never denied themselves the food that we put in front of them. We could have put it in front of them 10 times a day, and because they're pigs, they get their name for a good reason, they would have pigged out. They would have just kept eating and eating and eating, indulging in this life of what they felt was decadence, thinking, I don't have to do anything. People bring me food, I eat it, life is good. James is saying that living a life of pleasure-seeking and decadence is the same ignorant existence as the pigs on the farm that I grew up on. People who live for pleasure and luxury now on this earth are just as blind to the ending that they are heading towards as the pigs on our farm. If I'm a Christian who is struggling to make ends meet, while trying to live for the Lord, it would be tough to see rich people seemingly living a carefree life, getting away with anything and not having to struggle like I am. The temptation for me would be like, I just need to start pursuing wealth because all those wealthy people, they don't have the same problems that I do. I just need to make more money. But through this reminder here in James that the rich are fattening themselves, for the day of slaughter, I'm reminded, oh, their lifestyle is heading towards destruction. I would, be, I would be glad if I had these riches, but at the same time, I don't want those things at the sake of letting go of my relationship with Jesus. I have actually greater riches than they do. I have Jesus, and he lasts forever. Their wealth will fade away just like their life. See, that's a reminder that these people needed because the temptation to just give up and, and live a life pursuing the almighty dollar probably would be huge. And the third phrase that stands out to me here comes from verse 6. Verse 6 says, You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So reading this, these Christians would have realized that James perhaps is writing about them. I can imagine being someone who's reading this and saying, well, the innocent one who didn't oppose them, who murdered them, or who's, who's, who's murdering people like that. You know, Jesus, he went through something like that, didn't he? Yeah, he did. But you know what? At the same time, I'm going through something quite similar. Because I want to serve the Lord, people are, people are slowly killing my people off because they're ignoring our needs. They're, they're taking advantage of us. And when someone identifies and understands the exact struggle or the, the, the greatness of the struggle or the outcome that we're facing, I would be thinking to myself, hang on, James is talking about me. 
We're, we're not fighting back, even though, man, with every fiber of my being, I just want to jump up and grab those guys and stop them from what they're doing. But we're not fighting back. We're going to choose not to hurt these people in the way that they're hurting us. We're going to try to live with love. Man, is it ever hard. It's harder than anything I ever thought I would have to do. But I'm going to live with love because that's what my Jesus did for me. It's all we can do to stay the course and to fight the good fight. It feels like it's more than we can bear. But it hasn't been a waste. Because God knows we're trying our best. We're trying to remain innocent. Thank you, James, for seeing that in me. You know, one of the greatest tests of my faith in my own life came uh, years ago when I was let go from a church. Uh, I'd served faithfully at a church for a long time. And I was let go, and I didn't know why. To my knowledge, I hadn't done anything wrong. And I'm not just saying that because I was proud or arrogant or ignorant. It was actually confirmed later on by the board chair at that church. He said to me, Jeff, you haven't done anything wrong. And that made it even worse, actually, because if you know that you did something wrong, you say, okay, now I get why you made that decision. But if I didn't do anything wrong, why did you decide to do this? And it was hard. It was so hard. I felt humiliated and hurt and betrayed. I was so confused and I was trying to suppress this anger that just naturally was boiling inside of me. But Karen and I, we tried to do our best to do what was right in God's eyes. After months of struggling and and processing and praying and trying to just grind it out financially because of this loss of income in our lives, I just remember one conversation specifically with my dad. He told me, because we had been in touch over all these months, he told me, Jeff, I'm proud of you for how you've maintained integrity. I just thought, wow, that's amazing, because I wasn't sure if I was really doing that, because the battle within rages, right? And we try our best to not let it creep to the outside. We take captive every thought. We make it obedient to the Lord. We, we make sure that we, we don't let internal things become an external sinful pattern or something like that. But when my dad said that he was proud of me and he saw integrity in my life, I just thought that was amazing. He told me that he had seen the grief because I could talk to him honestly. And he said, Jeff, I'm so amazed that you have not become resentful or bitter. I'm so impressed that you haven't dragged anyone through the mud, even though you've had plenty of opportunities to do exactly that. And for me at one time, or for at that time, just to hear one person say they had, they had been watching me and that they thought I had been handling a very difficult situation well, that meant the world to me. That, that lifted my spirits for months after that. And you know what? Just like my dad was watching my life, and no, no matter how, how old we get, our fathers are, are always watching us. They're always watching to see what we're up to because they care about us. No matter how much our our earthly fathers are watching us, friends, our heavenly father is watching us as well. He knows the hardships that we face in life because he has faced them all. His son Jesus came to this earth and walked in our shoes. He bore our burdens. He faced our temptations in the exact same way. He understands the sacrifices and the difficulties and the suffering that enters our life because 
we are choosing to align ourselves with him. It's not easy to be devoted to Jesus. And if anyone ever tells you that it is, they're wrong. They're wrong, okay? It's not easy to be united with Jesus, but it is good. The temptations and the pressures I think that Christians face are greater than people who choose to walk in a secular lifestyle apart from the family of God. But in all that difficulty, God has not forgotten us. He's right here with us. What a comfort it is to know that we're not alone. God doesn't say, have faith in me because one day we're going to live together. He says, no, have faith in me today because our spirits are united. You have died to your old life and now you are alive in me. That's why we have that kind of comfort. He sees exactly what we're going through. You know, friends... As I was praying and and just going over my message this morning, I just felt like the Lord wanted me to share with you real quick that he knows your struggle. And I'm not saying that to just be, you know, patronizing, okay? I'm saying that because honestly, I, I felt in my spirit that there would be a person or people here today that needed to know this from the Lord. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly the struggle and the hardship that faces you in whatever circumstance it is that you are feeling the brunt of. Okay? Jesus is not ignorant to those things. He loves you beyond anything you could ever fathom. His faithfulness to you is great beyond measure. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never fail you. He is so persistent and relentless in his love for you. And friends, I don't know what you're going through this morning. But you need to know that. You need to know that and cling to that for your own faith. We can't go it alone. But Jesus is right here with us. Just take faith in that encouragement this morning. So after, after emphasizing or empathizing, sorry, with these believers, James moves quickly into encouraging them. In verse 7, he starts by saying, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Jesus is coming back to earth. And that is probably the most sure thing that we could ever have in our Christian faith. It's what we're looking forward to the most. That's why we live. Because we believe that Jesus isn't dead and hasn't uh, you know, come back to life. We believe that he has. We believe that he's alive today. He's ascended in heaven. And he's waiting to enter this earth again to establish once and for all his heavenly throne. Do you believe that, friends, this morning? Can I get an amen if you believe? Yeah, this is what we believe. This is what our lives are pointing to. His return is what our whole life is built on, but it will take great, great patience. Jesus compares waiting for the Lord's return to a farmer waiting patiently for the crop to produce a yield. 
As we wait for Jesus to come back, we're meant to stand firm in our faith in him. Not to say, "Eh, I don't know. This is taking a long time. I just don't know if it's worth it. I haven't seen any signs of his coming. Maybe I'm just off base. No, we need to stand firm in our faith. For some Christians, friends, they throw in the towel. They They may not say it with their words, but their actions speak loud and clear. They drift away from their zeal for God. They begin to coast in their devotion to Jesus. Worshiping Jesus together as Christians on a Sunday morning becomes a casual or optional practice. A farmer would never dream of saying at the end of June, Man, this wheat is taking longer than I would prefer. Maybe it's just not worth waiting for. And then they plow their whole field up. Bruce, would you ever do that? See, Bruce is a wise man. He knows the Lord and he knows farming. We need to stay the course as Christians. Otherwise, our hope in Jesus can get plowed under too. It can get sabotaged. And everything that we worked for, everything that we were striving for, for the peace of our life where our faith was good, all of a sudden it's taken a hit once and we just throw it away. That is a bad idea. We need to stay the course, friends. So James encourages us to be patient. No, no, no. I know it's hard. I know it's hard right now, but be patient. Don't give up. Stand firm. It's worth it. Remember, Jesus is coming back. This isn't the end. This is just us being prepared for the end. Don't give up. Keep keep at it. He reminds us that God understands what we're going through so that we won't give up thinking, oh, Jesus would never understand this. Surely this isn't what the difficulty that he had in mind for me. Actually, he went through it first and he showed that he could be faithful and we now can trust in someone who is faithful. One of my favorite encouragements to keep the faith, keep on living for the Lord, keep on pressing in and spending time with Jesus is from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 to 18. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on what's around us, but on what is unseen, what the Lord is preparing for us in heaven. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That is just like the most epic encouragement we could ever hear. I, I, I love this stuff because friends, I'm just like you. We're all the same. Every one of us is susceptible to saying, what is the here and now of my life? What is going on right now that, is, that I need to put my attention on? And you know what? When we think that way, it's not right. Because when we do that, we take our eyes off of what Jesus has for us. There are things that are pressing right now, things that we're supposed to be urgent in as the Father leads us to be, but they are never going to come from the opinions and the lifestyle of the world around us. They are always going to come from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. That's why we need to know these things so that we're urgent living today for what is eternal, not urgent in living today for what will fade away, right? Like these are so important. I love this encouragement. Because he's coming back, we want to be ready. And that's why we don't give up. We don't throw in the towel. And we don't say, I just don't know if it's worth it. We focus now on what Jesus has for us partially that we're going to experience fully one day with him. 
Verse 9 says, Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. This is a good exhortation for us when, when things get tough. I don't know about you, but when, when I go through something difficult, sometimes my attitude gets dragged down and I become difficult, okay? Right? So when, when we face difficulties as Christians, when we're supposed to be together and be cheerful and joyful and, and lifting each other up with encouragement, but when we're facing something difficult... I can actually make life difficult for you because my temper becomes short and I'm going to grumble against you, right? And you're going to grumble against me because we're all human. But that's the thing. James warns us about that. He says, guys, when you go through this difficulty, your, your temptation is going to be to turn on one another and get upset and, and be divisive. But friends, this is where we've got to really dig deep. We've got to really hang tough because this is not what the Lord has for us. He, he says that we're supposed to be helping each other out. Jesus urges us to resist this kind of divisive practice. I love what Hebrews 10 verse 23 to 25 says. This is the encouragement that counters the grumbling and the division that can happen in the church. Hebrews 10 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promises is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, right? Not grumble and complain, but spur each other on. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging other one another or encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Once again, we have to keep in mind that Jesus is coming back. That's our reason for staying faithful. That's our reason for encouraging others. Because maybe where I'm strong, you're, you're struggling. And I want to make sure, hey, don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Let's, let's stay firm. And then you have to realize, I might be your pastor, but I'm not invincible. I need your encouragement. I need you to ask me, Jeff, how's your life going? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you? I'm not saying that because I'm being selfish in prayer. I'm just being needy. I, I, and that's okay. If we deny ourselves prayer, we deny ourselves the encouragement that we need in Jesus Christ. So friends, if I, if I text you and I say, hey, I need you to pray for me, don't think I'm weird. Just think I'm normal. I'm more like you than you think, okay? James then points uh, to the persevering faith of others who went through great difficulty before these Christians that he's writing to, and he's using them as a model for us to follow. Verse 10, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets. Or think about them, right? Who spoke in the name of the Lord? So think about the prophets. Consider their lifestyle. This is what they did. They spoke in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Lord. And think about the hardships that they went through. Verse 11 says, as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have, have seen what the Lord finally brought about. So he's telling them, think of the prophets, think of Job. These guys went through crazy hard times. But look at what happened through their faithfulness. Look at how the Lord delivered them and was faithful to them, right? James mentions the prophets. These guys had a, a wonderful job in the Old Testament, calling people to seek the Lord. 
it wasn't an easy job, but through the revelation from God, these prophets spoke to Israel and to foreign nations about the coming Messiah, about sin, about repentance. Uh, Jonah, think of him, and he had to go to Nineveh, calling a land of people that he was terrified of to repent and turn to the Lord. That's not an easy job. Do you think they were ridiculed ever for those kind of messages? Probably every time they opened their mouth, yet they persevered. Okay, they had this wonderful intimacy with God so that they knew a truth to be truth and that they did not deviate from it. Even though it was hard, they didn't give up. And that's, well, that's why James is saying, hey, think of these prophets. And then also he tells them to think of Job. Job was a wealthy man. He had everything stripped away from his life. His family, his health, his possessions, everything was gone. He was left with a couple of friends who actually were not very friend-like at all. They caused him to doubt or were telling him just curse God and die. That's what his wife said at one point. But Job said, I'm going to stick with it. I don't understand this, but I'm going to stick with it. And he, for years, he endured hardships. And at the end, through his faithfulness, the Lord restored his health. And he gave him back everything to twice as much as what he took away at the beginning or what the Lord allowed to be taken from him. So perseverance is just this beautiful thing that we can see in the lives of the saints that have gone before us. And we need to remember these things. Persevering in faith cannot be underestimated. Our faith is constantly being tested. And, and I just think that these tests are ways for us to have our faith strengthened. Remember in James 1 verse 2, it said, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why would James say it's joyful? Because the testing of your faith develops something in us that we can't have developed unless we're tested. Perseverance. God is good. He knows exactly what we need. I think there's one more verse here. I just want to make sure I'm not messing it. Okay, good. Yeah, I got it there yet. Getting ahead of myself. You know, when I think about these things, um, when I think about the comfort and encouragement that we need in life, we could come at this passage from two different angles. Basically, there's two schools of thought, right? Maybe right now you're saying to yourself, Jeff, this is all fine and good, but honestly, I am at the end of my rope. I, I don't think I can take anything else. And if I do, I just don't know if I'm going to be faithful enough to even bother with following the Lord, let alone, you know, getting out of bed in the morning. Life is literally the hardest it has ever been for me right now. For you, brothers and sisters, if that's where you're at, I just want to let you know that does not disqualify you from faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't disqualify you ever. You could actually fail in this moment where you're fearful of failing, and God's love for you would still be so great. And he would still welcome you back and invite you to keep digging in, keep pressing into faith with him. He's right there with you in that moment that you're experiencing. Persevere just one day at a time. If a, if a whole day seems daunting, then take it one hour at a time. Set a reminder on your phone that goes off every hour if you need to to say, Lord, help me to trust in you for this next hour. And pray that prayer. Be faithful to ask God who is faithful to provide you with the strength that you need, right? Paul says, in my weakness, I am strong because the power of God rests on me in my weakness. That's where his power is made perfect when I am weak. Maybe for some of you, though, you're saying, yeah, life's kind of good right now. Honestly, there's no struggle. I feel pretty good. Um, life is dandy, right? My encouragement to you 
is actually just as serious, if not more serious, than those who would admit that they're in a struggle right now. Don't deceive yourselves, <laughs> okay? We say that life is good. Sometimes that's the, one of the most dangerous tipping points we can be in. Don't let off the gas when you think that things are going well. Don't begin to coast. Don't think that you're in the clear, okay? In the world that we live in, trouble is very close. First uh, Peter 5 verse 8 says, stay alert, right? Don't think that it's okay. Be alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do you ever watch those nature shows? You got all the water buffalo and they're all drinking water from this pond that looks gross. But they're drinking there nonetheless. And then you see the lion in the grass. Who does the lion pick on? The one who has their head up and they're watching? No. He looks for that sucker who's got their head buried in the mud and they're drinking water. Because it's like, hey, it's no problem. I, I, I got nothing to worry about, right? We don't want to be the people with our heads down. That's why Peter says, stay alert. When you think things are going well, just give yourself a little check. Stay alert. Lord, is there anything that I am oblivious to right now that is ready to sneak up and, and bite me in the leg? Right? Ask those kinds of questions because we don't want to fall asleep. Also think about this. If there is no discernible battle that you're feeling right now, pray about how you can be an encouragement to someone who is obviously in a great battle in their own life. I mean, the body of Christ, we are here to lift one another up, to exhort each other, to encourage each other, to bear one another's burdens. Friends, if you would say that you are uh, at a six, seven, eight, nine, or 10 out of 10, if you're at any one of those places, then you and I have an obligation to look for someone who's at a five or lower and pray for them, love them, and encourage them. And if we're not doing that, we don't get what life in the body of Jesus Christ is like. I'm here for you, but you're here for me. Let's just dig in together. Last, last sentence in this whole passage. I've saved one sentence from verse 11 so that we would look at it, and it's on its own. The end of verse 11 says, The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. We've talked about how hard it is to persevere. We might persevere, persevere pretty well in some moments and we might completely blow it in others. But all is not lost. Where we fall short, God's compassion and mercy hold us up and carry us through. His heart for you is tender. His mercy for you and his, his grace towards you is great. So no matter what situation you find yourselves in, if you feel like you've failed, if you feel like you've succeeded, but you could have done even better, God's grace and mercy and compassion are there for you. And he will always carry you through. Don't fall down and just decide to not give up. If you do fall down, or if someone's pushing you down, continue to cling to the Lord in faith. And his grace and mercy will carry you back to your feet. All right, like we said at the beginning of the service, we're going to have communion today. It's been a long time. It's been a long time, friends. Some of us maybe remember, oh yeah, I remember doing that. What, what is that all about again? I think it's, it's something that we need to refresh ourselves with this morning. Communion really is us remembering the compassion and the mercy of God on us in the greatest despair that we were ever in. The entire human race was lost in sin. 
And literally, we had no way of saving ourselves. There was absolutely nothing we could do that would change our circumstances. Uh, you talk about difficulty, like we've talked about this morning, the, the, the situation that we found ourselves in, dead in sin, was the greatest dilemma that we've ever been in. But through communion, what we're doing is we're remembering that Jesus' compassion and mercy were shown to us in the greatest way in the time of our greatest need. We remember that, that Jesus humbled himself. He was a king and he came to earth giving up his royal um, benefits of kingship in heaven. He came down to earth. He became like one of us. He became like the people that he created. The creator became creation. And he walked amongst us. He ministered to the people of this earth. And then he gave his life in a horrific way. Through the greatest act of love that we've ever seen. That's what we're remembering today. That's what we're focusing on. We're just remembering the amazing gesture that God gave to us. That allowed us to be set free from the sin that enchained us. So that we could walk in freedom and serve him and love him and be in relationship with the king of kings yet again. So that's why we're told to remember Jesus. We're told to celebrate communion. We're told to take the bread and the cup and remember what he's done and who he is and the relationship that we have with him. And this isn't supposed to be something we just hammer down and then put it back in the little, there's a little wire ring in the pew in front of you. We just don't walk through it, and as long as we eat it and drink it, then we're good to go. There's actually supposed to be a heart piece that goes along with this. I, for me, I think it's a great celebration. I don't want to remember something that, that makes me sad or regretting you know, anything that I've walked through. But I want to remember something, and I think this is what Jesus is saying, that we're supposed to remember something that is good for us. Something that has been done for us that we are thankful for, that gives us joy, that gives us wholeness. That, I mean, I want to be whole. I want to be forgiven. I want to be free. Those things give me great hope in my life. I want to remember something like that. And I'm so glad that Jesus has told us to remember the hope that we have in him. So just one last question before we, we take together. Some of us might be wondering who should take communion. The only prerequisite for who can participate in what we're going to do today are those who have trusted in Jesus to be their savior. I don't know exactly where everyone's at today. And you know what? What I know doesn't really matter. But what is going on right now in this moment between you and God is the most important thing. Friends, if you haven't made a decision to trust in Jesus and to walk with him in your life, even if you don't know what that means, but that's your desire, you can do that. If you, want to, if you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus right now to forgive you for your sins so that you can start life over, dying to who you have been in this life, ending that portion of your life, and now being forgiven and having a totally clean slate and walking with Jesus, doing life with him, serving him, committing to his work and his church and his kingdom, you can do that. You can receive his forgiveness right now. All you have to do is this. Believe that you can't free yourself from your sin. And believe that Jesus is the only one who can. Make that decision right now in your heart. I would totally encourage you to do that. And if you have made that decision right here, right now, or you've made it months, years ago, decades ago, 
then take communion today with confidence, knowing that you are a part of the body of Christ that we are remembering through what we're about to do.